I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture. All right, we're back. And uh, if you were with us a few episodes ago, you heard that uh, Seth on his sabbatical had uh, quite a lot of C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien running through his uh, mind and his veins, and uh, he hasn't quite shaken it yet. I have not, and I will not. (laughs) I feel like I've, you know, in the book of Revelation, the the church in Ephesus is rebuked for having wandered from their first love. Right, yeah. And not that C.S. Lewis is my first love, (laughs) but I didn't read anything meaningful until C.S. Lewis. Okay. And I remember first reading Mere Christianity as a senior in high school and just thinking, holy smokes, this guy sees what's going on in hearts and in the world. And even like he's right now 60, 70, 80 years after his like main bulk of his writings, it's prophetic, it's insightful, it's subversive. I Mm -hmm. think he he undermines a lot of uh, our own roadblocks to thinking well. And he really understood secularism. Yeah. And the the nature of how humanity is going to function under like secular assumptions and worldviews. Well, one of the things I think that's so helpful about that is he actually helps confront those worldviews and those perspectives and shows how they come up short. Yeah, especially. The, so the thing that is a really challenge when it comes to ethics is like, how do you come to convictions? How do you hold them with courage? How do you like resist uh, the tyranny of the majority. How do mm-hmm. you actually go about doing that? And before secularism was like predominant, like especially through Christendom, uh, there was this sense of like the authority of God that God corrects our false thinking, and that's like the old conservatism is like there is an ought that is out there. Uh, like in the last podcast, we talked about the old men uh, of the wise men of old. He called them. Uh, they saw their duty was to con con. Uh, conform the soul to reality. Uh, but what do you do when there is no sense of reality, when everything's postmodern, subjective, relative? Uh, then what happens in a society when people are trying to make moral and ethical judgments where nobody believes in a knowable, objective reality? And what happens is it ends up being consensus. It's popularized. It's, it's vote. It is percentage. It's, well, 61% of the population thinks this, therefore this. And it's like the majority of voters think that blank, and so therefore blank. And so it ends up being uh, democracy without God is just a tyranny of the majority. And so how do you, as a Christian, resist that yeah. and push against it? And well, that's it what take? we're going to talk about today through this dynamic that Lewis called the inner ring. The inner ring. And so we'll talk about what that is in a moment. But, uh, you know, this is one of these things. So, So part of what you're saying is like the reason this matters is because it's like, hey, we can get swept up unknowingly. In, in a dynamic that actually leads us to drift from the Lord. And I, I was thinking about drifting is such an interesting picture. Like occasionally you'll have people who just pull a total younger brother in the prodigal son story. Like I'm out of here, you know, and I just want the world. And, you know, I've had enough of that. But, I mean, but more often than that is just a slow, steady drift, a little compromise here, a little, little lack of love here. And it just, you know, and over time you end up finding yourself somewhere. You were like, how did I get here? And, and that's part of what could happen if we don't pay attention to this inner ring thing. I love the picture of drift because it presumes not active rebellion, but passive. Mm. And on vacation this past uh, summer, my dad brought these paddle boards and we were 
hanging out on, on Mission Bay, and he was laying down on one of the paddle boards in the water, just relaxing hand behind his head, and he started to drift. Yeah. And he drifted out into the bay, and our whole family is like, we should go wake up dad. And it's, <laughs> and it's like, sure. ah, you know, he'll, he'll be fine. He's, he's a grown man. And he, he, he kind of startled awake about. He fell asleep for real. I don't know if he was just in a deep meditative state. You know, sleep is a, is a slippery, uh, yeah. there's a, there's a, it's not a binary thing. You know? So there's various phases of being asleep when you're a grandpa. And so all of a sudden he startled awake and rode back in and, and it's like he, all of a sudden he was at some point he was going to, get run over by a boat and it was gonna be a huge problem but mostly it was just the, the terror of waking up and realizing i'm not i'm not where i thought i was yeah and sure I didn't necessarily take myself there and so drift is that but lewis talks about he it's a phrase he coined it's a it's pretty uh so the, the I, inner I, ring not to be confused with the ring of yes. the lord of the rings this yeah. is a different thing this is not a jewelry Okay. Yeah, it's not the ring on the inside of your other ring. It's not your engagement ring. That you have Maybe with. another way to talk about it would be the inner circle. The inner circle. Yeah. So yeah, tell us what what's the inner ring? Where? How did he? he you said he coined it. How did that come about? What's what is it? So it's the main subject of uh, a handful of books that have even like been written about C.S. Lewis's thought. Alan Jacobs wrote a book called How to Think, and it's a long exposition application of this inner ring. His his argument is that we actually think more relationally than we think logically. And that's not necessarily avoidable that you actually think with your guts and you desire to be approved of, and then you post hoc. So uh, rationalize uh, the answer for why you think something. And Jacobs isn't necessarily critiquing that as much as just observing that. Yeah. He's saying this is how it works. Yeah. He's not saying this isn't how it ought to work. He's just saying this is how humans come to convictions is they desire to belong to an inner circle. And so then they then, uh, come to beliefs or convictions, and then after the fact, come up with come up with reasons that they hold those convictions. And here's this thing I just want to do for more emotional and relational reasons, but I'll come up with logical reasons to explain it. Yeah, I whether it's like sexual morality or a belief in how taxes should be or what color shoes you should wear, you want something, and then afterwards, like, oh, it looks clean, or oh, I think you you want it, you love it. Because the community loves it and wants it. Yep. And then after the fact, you come up with reasons. And so uh, he talks about that. But Lewis talks about this in at least five different of his works. In The Great Divorce, Mere Christianity, Hideous Strength, Screwtape Letters, and in a couple of different um, addresses he in, gave. So in the fiction and the nonfiction. Fiction, nonfiction. It's a, it's a big topic. <clears throat> but so I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So from In The Great Divorce, Lewis is imagining a conversation between... Uh, two old friends who are now dead. One of them's in heaven, one of them's in hell. Uh, The condemned man is obstinate, unrepentant, uh, angry, uh, feels like he doesn't deserve to be in hell, and the redeemed man has a soft heart and is penitent. And uh, here's what what the latter one says, the, the penitent one. He says, Let us be frank. Our opinions were not honestly came by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed to be modern and successful. At college, you know, we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. So he's saying even our opinions weren't just rationally thought of, Hmm. but we are trained, even through the education process, to say the types of things that get good grades and get us applause. 
And so he's the, the penitent one's like, why are you so firm in your rebellion against God? Don't you know that you just started doing that because that's what got you applause? Don't you know? Yeah. Like the pat on the back. It makes me think about how like there's this dynamic on social media where someone like deconstructs their faith or comes out as LGBTQ and everyone says, congratulations, you're so brave. Mm. And it's actually like they're following the script. It's, it's actually not a, a, what's happening is they're choosing the approval of one group over and against the approval of another group. And so it's which gr- they're not necessarily charting their own course. They're just swapping groups, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and so one group will praise them as brave. One group will critique them as frustrating. It's similar in, within Christianity. Someone, leaves behind their LGBTQ lifestyle and joins Christ. And you say, wow, they're so brave. Sure. Um, and the other group says, who do you think you are? How can you dare? And so there's like this dynamic of the groups seeing behaviors, either cowardice or courageous, depending on which direction they're headed. So, I mean, are you saying that like, that's it? Like we just do everything we do because of just the desire to be approved of. And I'm saying that's our, that is everybody's default setting. Okay. So there will get, so you're not trying to reduce everything we ever do to only that, but you're saying like, that's way more in play than we think. Yeah. We, we like to believe we're free thinkers who make choices based on like logic, rational thought. Uh, we like to think that we do our own research and that we arrive at conclusions and that we're logical. And as long as we think that's true of us, we're in denial about a huge part of what's actually going on. In our hearts and minds. Well, what's interesting about that is I, I think we, I think we think other people are like that, but we are actually free thinkers. Absolutely. Right? Like I'm not, I'm not one of those sheep, you know, oh, the sheep, they just go along with whatever, but I'm a free thinker. Yeah. And it's like, I'm a free thinker just like everybody else and everybody yeah. else are sheep. So it's like, well, wait a minute. This is the, so it is interesting how we kind of like, we give ourselves the sense that like we're above all that, but of course other people are just going along with things. Yeah. It's like when I see the folks at the gym wearing the lines and not sheep stuff and they all dress the same, walk the same, have the same beliefs and opinions. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> sure. I'm not saying I'm not a sheep. I'm saying you're also a sheep. You're sure. Just, <laughs> right. Yeah. And stop. Like I'm, I'm not, not a, not, not a sheep. I'm a lion. Yeah, me too. Yeah. We're not sheep. We're not sheep. You know, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but this dynamic, you see it in scripture and it's, um, uh, so it's, this is in John, uh, thir- John 12. It says, um, many of the ho- authorities believed in him. And so it's talking about Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. Mm. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so you have people actively suppressing their beliefs for the purpose of not being put out. So that's like the inner ring, outer ring, inner circle, outer circle dynamic. They're, I have this privileged position of approval of these people who I want their approval. And if I confess or believe this, then I'll be put out. Um, and it says they love the glory or the weight or the severity or the praise that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so this is, John's getting at this dynamic here that even these so-called religious people, even these people who are really tempted to believe in Jesus are like putting to death the way we talk about resisting temptation because you want to honor the Lord or something else. They're resisting a good temptation, the temptation to believe in Jesus because they're trying to maintain their entering status um, in, in the Jewish synagogues. They really want the approval and the glory that comes from uh, horizontal dynamics more than from God. And so I, I see this play out 
part of what got me thinking about this is just this dynamic that I've observed, especially within Christians, who will say things like, I used to believe in what the Bible says about sexuality, or I used to believe the historically accepted understanding of biblical sexuality. But now I have a gay cousin or a gay nephew or a gay son or a gay coworker. And so now I've redone my research and I don't think that anymore. And it's this dynamic of because I want this person to think of me as a loving person more than I want to actually hold true to what God says, I am leaving behind. So this, this could be called approval idolatry. Like if idolatry is the worship of a false god, uh, then we are worshiping the approval of some people to give us our sense of self and help us feel okay about ourselves. So this is uh, self-esteem, self-ego management through the accumulating of the praise of certain people. Virtually nobody wants the approval of all people. If anything, there's some people, like you call it anti-approval, <laughs> that gives gives shape to this. Uh, Lewis talks about this uh, in Mere Christianity. Uh, so if you have the approval. Everyone wants the praise of some people. And there's other people who you just like, man, if those people hate me, then I'm doing it right. Sure. You know, so Lewis talks about this. He says, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. This is in mere Christianity. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that that story might not be quite true or not quite as bad as it was made out to be. Is, someone's, is your first feeling, thank God, that even they aren't quite as bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? So this is talking about there's a story wow. in the paper. Yeah, sure. There's a story in the paper that makes your enemies look bad, and you're like, wow. And it comes out, oh, it wasn't as bad as possible. You're like, dang it, I wish they were as bad. Um, so That would never happen. That would never happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just already think of multiple examples of that in the last number of years where it's like, yeah, I mean, the rest of the story showed like, oh man, that what I what was portrayed as happened right out of the gate didn't happen, but that didn't stop people from holding on to it because of this dynamic. Yeah, so thank God. Do you have the honest feeling? Thank God they're not as quite bad as that, or are you disappointed and even determined to cling to the first story, even though you know it to be false, for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it's the second, then it is. I'm afraid your first step in which you will be made into a devil. His whole point is there are certain people that if you're going like my hatred of them or um, I so badly want them to not approve of me and I so badly need to not approve of them. It's like this anti-approval instinct that if I approve anything they do or if they approve anything I do, it's kind of like this mutual hatred thing, then there's something wrong there. And so the first instinct to resist the approval dynamic is to em- embrace an anti-approval dynamic. I see this... Uh, especially like politically conservative and liberal, you know, it's the, the dynamic of uh, what do the liberals hate? Well, I love that. Sure. I'm not even sure what it is, right? but if they're against it, I'm for it. What do the conservatives love? Well, then I hate that and vice versa. You know, there's that well, and back it, and forth. And it shows up where like people who are, have a particular partisan leaning just can't give any credit to the other side when they do something right. And every now and then that happens. Right. And, and it's like, gosh, like, man, if you just can't ever, acknowledge that Donald Trump or Joe Biden did something good. It's like you're falling into this. Yeah. And that's usually those people end up like representing, like they're the figurehead of the whole group, you know, like it, it, so it's less, I don't like Donald Trump, but it's more like all the people that he represents. I don't like them. Yeah. Or it's like community, you know, I, I mean, since we're talking about it, like I, I know I talk to people who are like, you know what? I really don't like Donald Trump. He bothers the heck out of me, but man, all the liberal elites hate him. 
and I don't like those people. So, so you know what? I don't really like him, but you better believe I'm going to support him because I, I, I like those I, other people even less. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's even true. Like among and between the Christian community churches, you know, like yeah, like I. So, a couple weeks ago, Andy Stanley comes out and he's doing this LGBTQ, probably going to be doing gay wedding soon approval thing. Well, he he's they're hosting a conference that it seems to be you know lots of the speakers there are in gay marriages and yeah it's all about how to change your mind on LGBTQ stuff yeah. so go in that direction but holy smokes if we can't admit that guy knows a thing or two about church communication leadership preaching sure you know we have to have the fortitude in ourselves to acknowledge the good and the problems. Sure. In a person or the leadership, what they represent, and yeah, but but it is hard because it's like I, you know, I I post a lot of ministry leadership stuff on Twitter. You know, I connect with a lot of pastors in that environment, and I mean, a lot of leadership stuff. T- to your point, that has been really helpful and great over the years has been Andy Stanley, and it's like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna quote him now, I gotta go. Oh man, what's the calculus asterisk, of this? Asterisk, asterisk. Yeah, because yeah. I don't want to have to nuance everything, and on the other hand. It, there is this sense of going like, well, what, whose approval, who do I want to be seen to be with and aligned with? Right. And, you know, if I, if I do post something of that relates to him positively, does that align me with him in a way that I don't want to be aligned? And, right. And some of that is wisdom, but some of that is, is perhaps this like, whose approval do I need? Yeah. Inner ring posturing. But like that, that example of like virtually all the mainstream Christians I know who've come out in support of unbiblical sexual issues have done so on the grounds of a loved one or uh, who I need them to not think of me as something or as bigoted or whatever caused me to go back and re-examine the text. And now I see that actually says this, what, what's actually going on there is I have, uh, chosen to butcher the text in order to gain the approval of someone. So there's, but there's this, it's more subtle than that most of the time. Yeah. So in the hideous strength, which I've recommended the the novel, there's a story about this character named Mark. And the main plot of the first half of the book is Mark being dragged into and walking into the inner ring of the government agency that hates God, the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, NICE. And so you can see, so Lewis like develops this like almost like process of how your thinking and sense of self is eroded bit by bit by the entering dynamic. Mm. And phase one is desire. He's, here's what he says. He's like, he's far too reasonable to suppose that he should find himself at this stage in his career in the inner ring. So he, he sees the inner ring, he respects those people and what they think, and he's going, right now I can't have it because obviously I'm just me. Yeah. But man, aspirationally, as I develop in my career, I could possibly be there. So he's like ta- kind of talking himself out of it, like don't want it yet because you can't have it yet. Yeah. But at some point in the future, you might want to be there. You know, there's always that. Me- and, and the desire's there. The desire is there. The meeting that you're not invited to, oh man, if I was just in that meeting. The 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 think tank you're not a part of, you know, the the conference where you're not on uh, uh, included. It's this is like the FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. Dynamic like the real place where the real stuff gets made. I'm not in there and so I just want to be in there. And so he it begins with this desire and acknowledgement of the existence of the inner ring and his 
aspirational desire to at some point be in it. But he's kind of talks about it. The next one is people in the inner ring start to depend on him for things. So he starts to feel useful mm. to the inner ring. So he goes from desire to dependence. It says that the, the child inside of him whispered at how triumphantly grown up it was to be like this. Um, that he was writing with his tongue in his cheek articles for great newspapers against against the the time. So like the the entering people tap him and say, "We need you to do this. You're important to us. It'd be really helpful to us if you did this." He's like, "Oh, those people need me. They need my help. They want my my." And so it says, uh, "With all the inner ring of the nice, we're then depending on him." Mm. So now he's going, "Oh, they see value in me. Mm. Like there, there's like the the praise is beginning, the approval is beginning. Uh, he has." He's not belonging to the inner ring, but there's at least a part of him that feels seen by the inner ring, uh, understood by the inner ring. Uh, the next one is someone from the inner ring gets kicked out, and you there's this shame-honor dynamic. Mm. So there's this guy named Feverstone who get, gets moved out of the inner ring because he questions the, uh, the decision about something. And Mark notices in himself, like, oh, Feverstone, he must have blown it. And... Mm. Uh, don't make that mistake. So there is like a punishment dynamic of yeah. if you challenge the inner ring, then you're pushed out of it and everyone, this is like the shame portion of well, it. And, that, and that's an interesting thing is it plays out in life because there are times where it's like you you actually know and care about and like someone, but then they go from being in the inner ring to being the outer ring and you start to go, is it okay to still like them? Or do I need to now like signal that I'm I'm not I'm against them? Yeah, you need you need to agree with the assessment of the inner ring about an individual person. Yeah, that you may not actually feel like you do agree with it, but you go along with it sometimes because it's like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to upset the, you know, the inner ring. And so this is like the social distancing. I don't mean that COVID terms, but I mean yeah. the sense of leaning out from people on the basis of. Uh, their status related to the inner ring. That when someone's freshly kicked out of the inner ring, there's like, ooh, I don't, I want to be there. Um, the the second, the next layer of this, so you go from desire dependence, and there's like a dishonor. And the the this piece is really interesting. Is that Mark, his wife, his name is Jane. He starts to hate his wife because she doesn't understand the inner ring, mm. and he starts drinking a ton. He starts smoking a ton, and the thought of like, what if Jane was here with me? So now he's like concealing part of himself away from his wife. He says, um, there's so many things that Jane would just simply not understand. Um, not only the pretty heavy drinking, but this habit, but th- th- this habit from morning to night. Um, but it's only justice both to Mark and Jane to record that he found it impossible to conduct in her hearing any one of the hundred conversations with his life involved here. Her mere presence would have made all the laughter of the inner ring sound metallic, unreal, and what he now regarded as common prudence would seem to her, and through her to himself, mere flattery, backbiting, and toad-eating. Mm. I'm not sure what toad-eating means, but I, just, <laughs> I know it's, it's a cool word, it's though. It's a form of disgust. Yeah. Is like this inner ring thing is our inner joke, our inside jokes, our laughing, our, our like a professional dialogue. It's just flattery, backbiting, and toad-eating. It's just you're all being gross together, drinking all the time. And so he thinks like my, my wife who's on the outside would see clearly what's going on on the inside and she'd be disgusted by it. And therefore I, he, I don't like her because mm. she wouldn't, she, I see this as an accomplishment yeah. being 
grown up into this thing, and she would see it as degradation and as decay. Yeah, wisdom would say, maybe I should listen to my wife. Yep. Like she might have some insight on this, and she might see some things going on in this thing that I'm part of that I need to pay attention to. But but folly goes, well, I don't care. I, I, I need to be approved by these people. Yeah, so he's now weighing more what his colleagues think about him than what his wife thinks about him. And part of that's because she would be disgusted at what's it doing to him. And then the, the last piece is once he gets into the inner ring, he realizes that everyone there sucks and is evil. <laughs> and they're actually like killing people and they're destroying people, both literally and metaphorically. And it says there's this part of him that implored him to not, even now, to write off his total loss, his hard-won position in the inner ring. There must be some middle way. Hmm. And this inner ring is being pulled into evil, but once he like sees on the inside what's going on, he's in denial and delusion about the fact that, like, well, I can still have the approval of the inner ring and be the person that God wants me to be. And he's, well, and he's, I would think at that point there's a lot at stake, right? Like if I if I challenge the inner ring on what's really going on, or if I you know can't handle it anymore and I decide to leave, I'm gonna I'm gonna now be shamed. I'm gonna now be ostracized. I'm gonna be the one that turned. Yeah, he calls it, he thinks it's a hard won position the inner ring. It's a good career. It's the approval of his peers. It's the respect of uh, the the right and certain people. And he did work hard to achieve it. Now that he's achieved it, he has it, and he realizes that he's not the man who he wants to be. And now he's going to go, well, I can still be the man who I want to be and keep the approval of these people. And so that's the delusion of it is once you're in the inner ring, everyone hates being in the inner ring, and they nobody wants to get out of it because getting out of it would mean that you're now like that Feverstone guy who you're no longer in the inner ring and people just withdraw. So the, the loss of community is there. And so you don't you want to lose the negative aspects of the inner ring without losing the camaraderie of the inner ring, and it's impossible. You can't have it. And so that that's kind of like the move in hideous strength that goes Well, and, and oftentimes, I mean, I, again, I, I haven't read this yet. I do intend to read this. You're convincing me to read this book. You know, but I, but I think the way this plays out as well is a lot of times you've burned other relationships on the way into the inner ring. Yes, you've and stepped so on a lot of heads. Yeah. Yeah. And so now it's like, where are you going to go now? Like you kind of you cut yourself off from any other inner rings you could go be part of, and it's like if you leave this one, well now now what? They're, these folks are going to turn on you. These people re- resent you because you hurt them along the way. Yeah, you, you put yourself in a pretty isolating place. Yeah, and this is where uh, Lewis and Screw Tape Letters talks about like what to do about this. What does it take to actually get there? Here's what he says in Screw Tape Letters. He says chastity or honesty or mercy or aversion. So like possessing a chastity or honesty or mercy, which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only upon certain conditions. Then he says this, which is a great line. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Hmm. Think about like Christ before Pilate. Yeah. He's going, I don't know until the crowd's yelling and Pilate, who's like the most inner ring of the inner ring people here. Uh, succumbs to the pressure from even outside the inner ring. And so it, it, the absence of courage, the absence of willingness to take risk, actually erodes the virtue that was in the person. And therefore, it's not truly a virtue. It's an aspirational virtue. It's a sense of self-image uh, that's a projection, not a reality. And so like Pilate, the unwillingness to risk being disapproved of by 
the inner ring slash the crowd is what actually keeps you in that position. And so Pilate stays in the inner ring. He stays the center of the inner ring because he doesn't risk disappointing who the people think the inner ring should be like and what it should be like. And so uh, what Lewis ends up proposing is this idea of membership in contrast to an inner ring. Okay. Like what's a healthy community versus an unhealthy community? What is a group of people um, that is a constructive circle versus a destructive circle? Yeah. Well, that feels important because, A, it's not good for people to be alone. B, you know, if you're just the way we're naturally wired is we're going to make decisions and uh, believe things in part on the basis of the community we're part of. Like that, if that's just an, an inevitability, well, then we got to be part of some community. Yeah, but how do you how do you be part of a of a good healthy community that doesn't take on these destructive dynamics? Yeah, so Lewis points to the picture of a household versus like a a collective or an inner ring. He says, for example, the grandfather, the parents, the grown up son, the child, the dog, and the cat are true members in the organic sense of the household, precisely because they're not members or units of a homogenous class. They are not interchangeable. Each person is almost a species in himself. If you, if you subtract any one member, you have not simply reduced the family number. You have inflicted an injury on its structure and changed its very dynamic. Huh. Wow. And so... Yeah, that's so... I mean, that's so true. What he's saying is a community that insists on homogeneity or sameness, uh, we're adding an additional person who dresses the same, talks the same, thinks the same, walks the same, is actually not scaling in terms of like membership or community. It's just scaling in terms of inner ring or... A collective he uses the term negatively like uh, the group think deal and so what he's this is a speech he gave at king's college in the 1940s saying you're all going to go off in your careers and the inner ring is going to try to eat you alive and here's how you know if it's eating you alive and here's how wins in your leadership to not let it eat everybody alive is to uh, insist on like that individuals be different that there be push and pull that not there's not homogeneity that there is difference there is variety there is perspective now there's like shared vision and goals yeah but like a good football team if you had 60 quarterbacks it'd be terrible right. um or if you just have the Steelers quarterback they'd still be terrible <laughs> uh, but but you but you, you have different positions and you have difference it's like a rich household like it's a yeah. bachelor pad is not a substantive community because everyone's thinking and valuing the exact same thing. Yeah, you take one guy out of his disgusting room and put another guy in that disgusting room, and it's the dynamic's not really going to change that much, probably. Whereas you take out a father, you take out a mother, you take out you know the baby sister, like man, that becomes a whole different thing. Yeah, I mean, you take the three year old out, but it's actually like the introduction of the three year old and the tension that he or she creates in the parents that makes the household meaningful. Yeah. You know, and it's the, it's the competing values that must be negotiated and worked through and, and connected on and the inner self that's drawn out, you know, the values, like it's a husband and wife, the places where they're different that actually strengthens the household. And I think that that's a big part of it. Like, for example, I have a really good friend who, you know, just lost a child and they have an older child and they're talking about how impossible it is to grieve when the older child, like the older child's like two, yeah. two and a half. There's no concept of loss. Sure. You know, it's just, and it's like, how do you grieve when 
two and a half year old. Yeah. And actually like there's a sobering effect of that, that you have to go from loss of child to one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Wow. Right. You have to go from the depths of God putting you in the pit to, Hey mom, let's go swimming. Right. And the, like the up and down and the oscillation of that. And obviously like you, there are times when you want, can you, someone please come watch my child? Cause I just need to be in the pit and grieve. Yeah. But actually like the reintroduction of the, the child who does not understand or can't really comprehend or value loss. They just value naps and eating and playing. Right. And there's something grounding in that sobering yeah. that connects. And as long as you don't take that child's difference as dismissing of grief, but as just a different operating system, it actually roots you in reality and draws you towards a hope. And the the play of children and the grief of loss create the meaning in, in their tension. Yeah. It's actually not, and we want to like remove the tension and think that will be more pure, but it's actually the removal of the tension makes it more ingrown and not, not connected. Hmm. And so that's part of what Luz is getting at here is, you know, the dog this is, I think why there's people who are such dog people. So you have a terrible day at work, your dog comes home and is just happy to see you mm-hmm. or at least acting happy to see you because you feed it. And it doesn't, I don't know if dogs have real emotions or if they just learn how to fake them. So they're cared for. <laughs> wow. You know, so that's pretty cynical, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, I'm not a huge dog guy, but gosh, I, that, I'm not that dark I'm about not a, it. I'm about not, the I'm inner just, psyche of dogs. I I'm think just saying it, yeah. it's great that God makes dogs just easily happy. Yeah, and the same you, people who like cats, you know, they feel important at work. They come home, their cat ignores them, and it's like <laughs> a good humility dose, you know, who knows. But there, but it's actually the tension of the community that creates the meaning of the community. Yeah. And so if we find ourselves drifting towards communities with an absence of tension, mm. you know, every, all conservatives want to go to church where everyone's conservative, or all liberals want to go to church where everyone's liberal. And I mean those terms very vaguely, generally. Yeah. Um, where we all hate the same people and love the same people. And, and I think that's a mark of emotional immaturity, a mark of relational immaturity. And that's the approval, anti-approval dynamic. And so, well, tell me this. So, I mean, one of the things I know that Lewis is well known for is describing friendship, that friendship is when you encounter someone and you say, Oh, you too. You know, that there is this sense in which friendship happens through commonality Oh, wow, you also? Like, man, I, I thought I was the only one. Oh, you too? Um, so on one hand, it's like, okay, that is a part of friendship. Like, it, it's it's hard to be with, like, good, close friends with someone where you go, like, we just really don't have much in common. Like, we don't think the same way. We don't make decisions the same way. We don't enjoy the same things. We don't know. We don't have the same cultural and historic and experiential references. Like, you got nothing in common. It's going to be pretty tough. You know, but is it like, well, if, if you have too much, you, too much, oh, you too, then it's just, am I just creating an inner ring? I think that having something in common is different than requiring or having everything in common. Hmm. And I, I think what's important for us is to like pay attention to our hearts that when we have a close friend who disagrees with us about something that we care about, do we tend to lean out or lean in and say, this is gift. Like, hmm. This is good for me. Yeah. And this is someone who like loves the Lord Jesus even. And they think that, 
I don't even have an example. Okay, just yeah. totally disagree with you about the tax rate. I'm trying to use a trivial thing. <laughs> you know, they totally think the tax rate should be 47 percent, and you totally think taxation is theft. It should be zero percent. You know, is that? Are you going like, well, I guess I can't be friends with them anymore, right? Um, or you're going like, hey, this tension's probably good for me, and yeah, I need a like this is a gift from the Lord, and so so I think that's part of the. And that's not to say you can't disagree and discuss, but I think that. Uh, we find ourselves creating inner rings when we're insecure and we want uh, homogeneity and we want uh, the approval of certain people and the anti-approval of other people. And yeah. and so we can actually construct inner rings when we uh, are searching for stability and security outside of Christ. We're the creators of them. Well, and I've seen people get into real trouble when they actually have multiple inner rings that they're trying to please and trying to keep happy. You know, and they say this to this person, and then they say something really pretty opposite and different to that person, and something mm-hmm. pretty opposite and different to that person, and end up really getting themselves in a bit of a pickle because they don't really know who they are. They don't really haven't really thought through like, who am I? What is God calling me to do? What do I think about this? Really, what is you know? It's a bit of like a you know they're like in the pinball machine, doing 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 doing, and you actually need actually to get some space and go. Who's, who am I and what does God say and who, what's my identity in him and, you know, am I going to be okay if all these people think, oh, man, he's an idiot. Yeah, and it happens to even the healthiest, best, and most mature of us from time to time. We find ourselves in this inner ring Venn diagram yeah. and you feel the pull. So feeling the pull is not the mark of immaturity. Submitting to the pull without courage is the mark of immaturity. Mm. And so if any of us think we're not pulled by this inner ring dynamic, even when there's multiple of them in the Venn diagram, like, first of all, we are. Yeah. Like, it's, we're wired to have, to seek the approval of an authority figure. Uh, the question is, do we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? And I think that's like the place where it starts. Is like, do I love the glory that comes from God? Do I love his approval? Am I most happy about that? Does that approval mean the most to me? It's sort of like just dynamic, like in my preaching at Gateway, where if you, my boss, Luke, think my preaching is doing what it's supposed to do, then some random person saying your preaching sucks. I, <laughs> I feel like it's way easier to be like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Like, so, and some of that's how it ought to be sure. because you're my boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your uh, approval of like my job does matter more to me but there's a greater sense in which like the approval of the lord in my preaching should matter more than yours sure well and it's also like i mean preaching is an interesting example like you go into some environments where it's like every preacher sounds the same you know and so like if you started feeling like i need to sound more like luke i need to preach more like luke uh that to me would start to be like well no i think actually the 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 reason i appreciate us being a teaching team is because of the contrast and the compliment of it and I like that I'm different from you and you're different from me and um, I think it's a gift I mean so many times when you're preaching Seth I I sit there and think man I would have never gone that direction and I'm so glad our church gets to hear someone go that direction like I I would have never thought of that I would have never connected those dots but I'm glad that someone does right and um, I think it I think it's a good pairing anyway so just to that point to me like wanting me as your you know boss to you know, be happy about your preaching, of course, but for you to start becoming someone you're not in order to become more like me, I think that would be horrible. 
Yeah, and I just use it as an example of that if we really hear the voice of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then the naysayers and the various inner rings who want to pull us, yeah. their voices get quieter. Yeah. And so and like that's where the true source of courage comes from, not from some just inner stubbornness, sense of resolve, but from knowing about the glory that comes from God mm. and in Christ by his blood that he's pleased by our obedience. And so I think when we worship approval of man or end up fearing man, but when we uh, recognize we have the approval of God in Christ and he's pleased by our obedience, then it enables us to resist the entering dynamic and we get to walk with a sense of resolve. Amen. Well, that's a great place to end. Thanks, brother, for your reflections. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, man, this uh, this C.S. Lewis well, I have a feeling this isn't the last time we're going to dip into it. And I, I'm, uh, I'm blessed as we keep doing it. So uh, thanks. And uh, yeah, we'll see everybody next time. Have a good week. Hey.